hi, hello, my creepy lovelies. Welcome back to another Wednesday here at the Creepy Cryptid Crypt with your host, Black Widow. Um, I have a doozy this week. Um, this episode took me quite a long time to write because it is such a doozy and it's very triggering. And then I went in a whole spiral about how there are so many male serial killers who are sexually motivated and just complete terrible human beings. Um, so trigger warnings, trigger warnings, trigger warnings, trigger warnings. Uh, yeah. So I'm just, I'm going to get right into it. Uh, on a lunch break again. Yay. Multitasking. <laughs> so we'll see. We'll see how much we can get through on my lunch break. Um, so today I'm going to tell you about a serial killer out of San Diego known as the Claremont Killer. Um, and like I said before, trigger warning, trigger warning, his murders are pretty brutal and they sometimes include rape. Um, so just, you know, buckle up because here we go. Um, there are a lot of books on this individual, so I'm only going to do like a very brief personal history on him and then just get right into the crimes. Um, this data is directly from some of the court documentation based off of some of the appeals that he tried to do. So without further ado, here we go. So Cleophus Prince Jr. was born July 24th in 1967, and he had previously served in the U.S. Navy, although he was court-martialed for a larceny charge in 1989. He was subsequently convicted and then served a small sentence before being dishonorably discharged. After being discharged in December of 1989, he landed in San Diego and ended up living with his girlfriend, Charla Lewis, in the Buena Vista Gardens apartment complex in the Claremont District of San Diego. Um, at the time, he had a job working at the Expo Builder Supplies Company, and he'd work from 3 p.m. to midnight. Um, by 1990, he will have moved to this company called Natcomcoms, which sounds a little silly. Anyway, um... So our first incident occurs on January 12th, 1990. Tiffany Schultz, age 21, was bathing in the doorway of her second floor apartment around 10 a.m. at the Canyon Ridge apartment complex. Um, and this complex is across the street from where Prince and his girlfriend live. So there are two complexes across the street from each other, right? Um, but they shared, like the two complexes shared a gym slash rec facility, which I thought was interesting because then who pays for what? But anyway... Um, and Tiffany's apartment overlooked the shared gym. So she talked uh, to a friend on the phone between 10 and 10.30, but um, any calls after noon, she didn't answer. So she, you know, very popular gal, on the phone all the time, I guess when she wasn't working. Um, so she's not answering phone calls. And Dorothy Curtis Tiffany was, oops, sorry, I didn't put any punctuation in this notes because I was having a hard time. Dorothy Curtis, Tiffany's apartment manager, said uh, a stranger approached her at 10.30 on that same day. And the stranger approached her and said, hey, I'm locked out of my car. Do you have a hanger so I can unlock the car door? And he like gestured across the street, right? And she's like, oh yeah, totally. So she gave him a hanger, but then he walked like towards the like inner more inner of the apartment complex. I realize it doesn't make exact sense, but I hope you can visualize what I'm visualizing. So instead of going across the street where he gestured his car was, he just went further into the complex. Um, 
So Curtis testified saying her office was close to the stairs of where Tiffany's apartment was, and she said she had seen Tiffany sunbathing at 10 a.m. So she saw Tiffany at 10 a.m., she gave this stranger a hanger at 10.30, we're tracking, right? So Tiffany's downstairs neighbors told the police officers that they had heard a domestic disturbance in Tiffany's apartment roughly from 1 a.m. to 11 p.m., and they also heard running water. So remember, she hasn't picked up any phone calls since noon, and the last call she was on was ended at 10.30. Um, uh, Later, Tiffany's roommate would find her in one of the bedrooms of the apartment. Her top was missing, and she lay on her back. Her one leg was extended under the bed, and her other leg was bent at a 70-degree angle. Um, Her body was smeared with blood, and there was another blood stain on her bikini bottoms. Um, her body had 47 stab wounds and a cluster of about 20 of them were in her chest, specifically her right breast. And some of those stab wounds had gone all the way through her body. So I just want you for a second to think about the amount of force that you have to be using to shove a weapon all the way through, through and through someone's body. That is a lot. That, that's just, that's a lot. Um, she did have some defensive wounds. Her mouth was bruised. She had blunt force trauma to her head. They found a damp towel near her and the bathtub was still wet. So maybe that's, you know, he was trying to eliminate evidence and that was the running water of the neighborhood. The neighbors heard. Uh, there was no evidence of sexual assault or forced entry. However, the doorknobs had blood marks in the shape of like a honeycomb crosshatch pattern on them. And so it looked like the suspect came in that way, but left through the patio and like jumped down. Because remember, she's on the second story. Um, originally, her live-in boyfriend was arrested. And, you know, in most cases like this, the boyfriend or the spouse or whoever is a prime suspect Uh, He was released a few days later, and as more of the investigation unfolded, it was pretty clear it wasn't him. So we jump to February 16th, 1990. Uh, Janine Weinhold was 21 years old, and her and her roommate had an apartment in the Buena Vista Gardens apartment complex, also where Prince and his girlfriend live. Just a reminder there. Um, They were both students at UC San Diego, and Janine had taken her roommate to work and was like, hey... I'm going to go home. I'm going to do some chores, but I'll be back to pick you up. Like, don't worry. Uh, I'll be back at 2 p.m. But she never got there. And her roommate was like, okay, A, she's never late. And B, like, she she would have called if she had something else to do. Um, their downstairs neighbor, Marsha Nelson, testified saying that from 1130 to 12, she had seen Prince sitting on the outdoor stairs near Janine's apartment. And she said she had watched him for about 15 minutes. And she would also later testify that she heard loud noises from the apartment above her, which is Janine and her roommate's apartment. Um, She would later withdraw her of police lineup identification, but on the stand she said that she did because she didn't want to get involved and she was really fucking scared. Um, This seems to be a trend with a lot of the witnesses that were used in this case. So just, just keep that in mind. Um, again, all phone calls placed to Janine's apartment after 2.30 weren't answered, and her body was discovered by her roommate when she finally got back to the apartment at 8 p.m. Uh, the front door was locked, and there was no sign of forced entry. A knife that belonged to the roommates was found in the sink, covered in blood with the tip bent. So just 
kidnapped. Um, Janine's body was found in her bedroom. Her legs were spread at odd angles. Her clothes were nearby. And her pants and her underwear were, like, inside out. Like, she had just taken them off. Like, you know, you're getting a shower, and so you take your clothes off, and they're inside out, right? Um, she had... 22 stab wounds total. Some were so deep that they hit the ribs and the breastbone. Um, and there were defensive wounds as well. And so this is why forensic specialists think, I'm sorry, this is why they know that it was the same knife in the sink that was used because it hit those bones and it bent the tip of the knife. Because again, this individual is using a lot of force to hurt these people. Um, I think I said this, but I'll say it again. She had some defensive wounds as well, and there was the same honeycomb or crosshatch pattern on the door jam, like from the first crime scene. Uh, this is trigger warning. You have been warned. Okay. Um, investigators found semen inside her and near her that was tested, and at this time, the DNA evidence was done like a little differently, so when they did the expert testif testify, not testification, sorry, um, they said that Prince's blood had a DNA match to the semen and a match that's similar to about 7% of the population and therefore it would occur in about 1 of 120,000 people. So we have DNA. It's not as clear cut as it is now, but it's very likely that it was Prince. It's like 93% that it wasn't him. Sorry, that's not right. A match that's similar to about 7% of the population. I can't do math. It's very likely it was him. Because that's a, it's not going to... It's a small match similar to a very few amount of people. There we go. Sorry. Um, Prince also made a number of incriminating statements that confirmed his involvement in this crime. So he told his friends Robin and Tony Romo that he went on a date with Eleni, and then he raped her, and then he said that she cried, and so he went back and he raped her again. And then um, a co-worker said that, oh yeah, he mentioned like this girl named Janine, and he said that they work out at the same gym together, and that sometimes they would go home and like have sex or whatever. Um, this same co-worker was also told by Prince that, oh yeah, the cops are never going to catch that Claremont killer. It's not happening. Um... I think he had some priors. Again, there's tons of books on him. You guys can read them. Also, I just, after reading through all of this and the evidence, I don't really care to know much about his beginning life because it's pretty clear that he committed these crimes. But um, there was a jail informant that had come forward, and I don't know if this was during the prosecution or during the appeals, but he said that um, he and Prince had several conversations, and in one specific conversation, he Prince had said that he hated white women and what he would do at work when he was working for that cable company is he would look at the mailboxes and then um, pay attention to who was living who at the job excuse me to see if women lived alone or not so so he could pick who to rob mm. and then they both talked about how much they enjoyed assaulting women and so prince stated that he liked to first stalk and then play with his victims like letting them believe they could escape and that he liked watching uh, the blood drip from the knife onto the victim's pubic area. So um, he's just really, really gross, terrible human in general. Um, sorry, hang on one second. Okay. Um, Anna Cotessa-La-Rigi 
um, testified that on March 25th, 1990, during about noon, she walked from her second story apartment in the Buena Vista Gardens apartment complex to the store. And then she saw Prince at the bus stop on her way to the store. But when she was on her way back, he wasn't there. And so she got closer to her apartment building and she saw him again, but he was walking towards her and he stared at her as they like walked by each other. And she was like, okay, that's kind of weird. So she got to the door of her apartment trying to put the key in the lock. But then she saw him watching her from the bottom of the stairs. And she was like, eh, okay, I don't like this. And he was just fucking staring at her. So they made eye contact and he bent down to pretend to tie his shoes, but they were already tied. And she was like, I have to get the fuck in this apartment. So she opens the door, she locks it. It was a whole thing. But she was able to positively identify him at the video lineup as the person who followed her. Um, and she identified him again at trial. So he's got a pattern. He's picking people who are close to him in proximity, who are convenient. He's got a style of stalking. It's, uh, yeah. So a month later, so I think we're in April then, uh, 18-year-old Holly, oh, this one sucks. Sorry. 18-year-old Holly Tarr out of Michigan goes to visit her brother Richard at the Buena Vista Gardens apartment complex on her senior spring break. She brought her friend Tammy Ho um, on April 3rd specifically. They went to go play tennis and then later went to the pool around 11. Now remember, that, that gym area is technically across the street at the other apartment complex. So Tammy saw a muscular African-American man working out at the gym area around 1210. Holly went back to the apartment to shower. Tammy followed her like 10 minutes later, um, but she thought she heard screaming when she got to the apartment. So Tammy tried to open the apartment door, but it was locked and she could hear the telephone ringing in the background, but nobody was answering. So she knocked and knocked and knocked and knocked and she's calling out to Holly, but she's not getting any answers and she's freaking out. So thankfully, no, thank you, Slinky. Sorry. Thankfully, a neighbor... You know, only some neighbors are so nice nowadays, everybody's suspicious, but thankfully this is the 90s and people are still pretty nice and genuine, um, called the complex maintenance crew. And the maintenance crew didn't get there until 1230. So we've got like a 20 minute gap at this point, right? So he shows up, but um, the top chain on the door had been secured. So he had to break the chain for them to get access to the apartment. And so they open the door, Tammy runs in. She sees a man coming out of the bedroom, running toward her. He had a white cloth across his face, a long knife held up by his face. So it's kind of like Michael Myers running at people with his knife. It's all the way up by his head, right? Um, he had, was wearing a red shirt and he had a dark complexion. And Tammy dodged him, fell to the couch as he ran past her out the front door. Um, Tammy found Holly in the back bedroom, gasping for breath. Her opal ring had, was just missing. Um, and so he ran past a bunch of people to get out. Everybody's trying to get to Holly to help. Um, the log for the complex gym only had four people log in that entire day. And so it was Richard, Holly's brother, Holly herself, her friend Tammy, and Prince. Um, so we have that whole incident. Between noon and one, a bunch of bystanders had heard screams coming from the direction of her brother's apartment, and witnesses stated that they saw a man in red and black pants dart across the alley close to the apartment, but he disappeared in between buildings, and the maintenance guy who gave chase to this guy gave the same description. Um, uh, Holly's legs were spread. Her She was in her underwear and her bra. There was a towel on her chest. There was only sign of forced entry because the maintenance worker broke the chain off the door. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, 
Blood was on the stairwell leading to the apartment and all over the apartment. Um, Forensics was able to find a shoe print that matched Prince's Nike Air Jordans in both size style. Um, And then a bloody knife taken from Richard's apartment and t-shirt were found on the sidewalk near the apartment. So it's where he would have run out in that journal area. Um, All the blood they found in the apartment was Holly's. Unfortunately, they couldn't get her medical help fast enough. So she ended up dying from the single stab wound that was seven inches. Um, It went straight into her heart and it went deep, like all the way through. Um, So yeah, that's just a fucking thing. Uh, The day of Holly's murder, Prince's friends Robert, Romo, and Timothy Buckingham saw him wearing a red shirt driving his car through the alleyway of the apartment complex between noon and one. Um, And they also saw him wearing something white on his head. So Romo was, you know, just chatting with his wife, and he's like, fuck, dude, there's been another murder. Um, And they testified to seeing Prince a little bit later after the murder, but he switched shirts. And then um, the police interviewed Prince, and he was like, oh, yeah, I was at the pool until noon, and then I went back to my apartment until I left for work at, like, 1.50. But he declined to go to the station to be fingerprinted, and then Romo saw him in person a few days after him being Prince, a few days after Holly's murder, and Romo told him, he was like, dude, there's been another murder. And Prince was like, oh, I know, I was at the pool. Like, I saw her leave. Like, bro, he didn't say who had been murdered. Like, how the fuck? Like, no. Ugh. Um, when police finally searched his girlfriend's place, they found Holly's opal ring. And what's significant about this piece of evidence is that only 63 in total had been made and they were sold specifically in Michigan and Wisconsin. And if you remember, Holly was visiting her brother on senior spring break. So there's no other reason. It's, it is highly unlikely and statistically improbable that he had obtained that ring in any other way. Um, it also didn't help that his girlfriend testified to the fact that Prince gave her the ring in December of 1990. So there's that. Um, from April 25th to April 28th, Prince stalked and tried to get into more women's apartments, and I've like chunked this information down because it was woman after woman after woman after woman repeating the same pattern that happened to Anna. Like they all saw him. They all saw him try to get into their apartments. Some of them were able to get in and lock the door, but other times he was like trying the door and it was just the whole thing. And he wasn't being slick. Like so many people saw him. One witness got his license plate one person saw the car he was driving. They obviously gave the cops a license plate. It was clearly registered to him. And like I said, he wasn't trying to cover his face. There were so many people who could identify him, identify his car, and they had seen him try to break into these apartments. Like, the fuck? And then, you know, May 1990, he attacked Leslie Hughes-Webb after breaking to her apartment, but she managed to get back out of the apartment and started screaming. So he broke the back window and climbed through. Oh, he still went to work after that. Like, trying, I don't know. I don't know if he was trying to keep his alibi. Your work hours are like 
after all of these attacks, you idiot. So clearly you're committing these and then you're going to work. Like fucking, sorry. I just like the fact that there's so much evidence in witness testimony and timeline and physical evidence and forensic evidence, like, and the fact that he can, so we'll get to this all the way down, but the fact that he continues to appeal just blows my fucking mind, blows my fucking mind. (sighs) Um, so we get to May 20th, 1990, he murders, um, Elisa Keller, 38. Elisa's daughter finds her in her bedroom on the floor, a blanket on her torso. She was wearing only a tank top and her bloody underwear was on the floor. She had nine deep stab wounds to her chest. Um, The coroner would also find defensive wounds. And they found that similar shoe print as well as that similar crosshatch pattern at the scene. And so what they ended up finding is that that crosshatch pattern, that honeycomb pattern was coming from gloves. And these were gloves that he used and had access to at work. And they found some in the trunk of his car upon his arrest. And there was a pair in his girlfriend's closet. So like, dude, Um, he stole a gold nugget ring from Elisa and was seen wearing it around until it was stolen from him. Uh, An acquaintance stated that he often had a lot of jewelry, which he would brag that he stole from women he was sleeping with. And then he would often remark that they wouldn't be needing their jewelry anymore. Like, what a sick fuck. God. Um, He also would show this person how he was breaking into everybody's apartments. So I guess what he was doing is he was taking a Blockbuster video store card and, like, shoving it in... I don't know what the fuck that thing is called. I'm staring at it, but I can't articulate it. Um, Where the door closes and the latch, blah, 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 blah. He was shoving it in there and, like, wiggling it around until the door opened. Like, Jesus. Sorry, now my nose is itchy. Um, Oh, this one. Fucking. I think the other thing that baffles me is that you have all of these things that are happening in a close proximity to one another within a, a one and a half year time frame. So I'm not entirely sure on why it took so long for him to get caught. I just want to throw that out there. I know the 80s and the 90s was like serial killer city in Southern California, but like, goddamn, just fucking... So August 2nd, 1990, he broke into Anna McCumber's apartment and stole money. Um, She had friends visiting from Italy and he stole their money and he went and exchanged it and then deposited it straight into his accounts. So now they have a paper trail. Why the fuck are you appealing? Get the fuck out of here. Absolutely not. (sighs) Fucking asshole. Um, This is his last murder. It's not... It doesn't get better. It gets worse. Let me just put it that way. Um, September 13th, 1990, he kills mother and daughter Pamela Clark, aged 42, and Amber Clark, 18. Um, A friend of Pam's found her body in the entryway of their house. 
she was naked, lying on her back with her arms spread at 90 degrees to her body um, with her legs together. She suffered 11 deep stab wounds clustered in the upper chest, upper left chest area. Uh, and each stab wound measured about four and a half inches deep. So th- there's a lot. Um, there was evidence indicating that she had been dragged to that specific location. And he left the knife there. It was right above her body. Just, um, Amber Clark's body lay on the floor, partly in the hallway and partly in a bedroom. She was closed, but her garments, her, her shirt had been pulled down to expose her boobs. Um, her legs were spread somewhat apart like her mom. She had 11 deep stab wounds clustered in the left upper chest area, measuring the same size. Um, <clears throat> blood had been smeared on her body, but that knife lay on the floor in the bathroom. Um, they found Pam's purse, but it had no money and her wedding ring was missing. And so they thought that possible points of entry included the partially open... jeez. <coughs> Sorry, dining room window. Um, So it was a little bit open and the screen had been removed. And the living room sliding glass door also had the screen removed. Um, They found shoe prints that led back and forth under the dining room window. It matched his other brand of shoes. And he didn't go to work that day. He had too much to do, so he called in sick. Just fucking... Um, and two people who were living with him testified that he had Pam's wedding ring. And his coworker testified that Prince told him during the summer of 1990 that he was dating a massage therapist and that he was doing the massage therapist and the daughter. So he was saying that he was fucking Pam and Amber. Like, just... And he commented to his coworker that the massage therapist was older. He just, he told a bunch of people. He told another person he was working for that he was going to do a mom and daughter. And, you know, the foreman was like, oh, I thought that meant sex. And I guess maybe that's what this other coworker went. I mean, but that's very vague, especially if you don't assume that your coworker is a fucking psychopath just killing all these people. And then he offered to sell jewelry to his boss. He's like, hey dude, I have jewelry I want to sell you. Here, take the jewelry. Like, Jesus. Um, There would be at least six more burglaries along the way. He had been caught. He was caught for the burglaries. They They didn't put two and two together. I don't know why. But they didn't, especially since there were a ton of witnesses who saw him. I don't know how big the department is. I don't know how many precincts they have. Like, I don't, I don't know who's in charge in San Diego, but, or who was in charge in the 90s. And it, and it bugs me because after Holly's death, they had a really good composite sketch of him that had been sent, not sent, but distributed within the San Diego Police Department. And they're already putting together a pattern in the description of the, in the method. So it's like, what? Why? Why did it take so long? Are you on demand? Like, fuck. <sighs> Sorry. Um, ultimately, he was caught in February of 1991 after trying to break into a woman's house after following her home from a health club. 
Um, she was about to shower when she heard a noise near the front door, so she ran to a neighbor's house. Neighbor tried to fight Prince. Prince said he was looking for a female friend, and that's why he went into that house. I think it's actually an apartment. Sorry. Um, and he left, but not before more people wrote down his license plate number. So that's like February 1st, maybe, right? And so the police have this composite sketch. They have more witnesses. They have the license plate. So what they did was super smart. So they went around and they told a bunch of health clubs and gyms that this is this guy is dangerous. This is his car. This is his license plate. Keep an eye out. So what happened was is somebody identified him on February 4th and they ended up arresting him in the parking lot of a health club. So, and... Sorry. So there's all that. So good on the gym workers and the health club workers for paying attention. That doesn't seem to happen a whole lot now. So good job, guys. Um, upon his arrest, he offered his DNA, which matched Janine's murder, and they ended up trying him in March of 1992. He was found guilty of six first-degree murder charges and 21 other felony charges. Um, the jury gave him the death penalty on November 5th, 1993. Like I have said multiple times in this episode, that he's peeled a bunch of times citing that he didn't get a fair trial because it was all over the media and everybody knew who he was and Mimo Mimo. Fucking no. Um, thankfully, his appeal was denied in 2007. And as far as I'm aware, he's still on death well. Death. Sorry. My next segment is like a ranty part because I'm angry, but we'll just. Model through it, or you can stop listening because that's the end of it. Um, his appeal was denied in 2007. He is still on death row, or at least that is what the website says. It, like I said, they're not, in my previous episodes, they are not informing victims, family members, if these convicted murderers who are on death row are being moved to this program that dumbass motherfucking Gavin Newsom has just decided to start in California, which I have talked to several, several people, lawyers included, and it is really not legal for him to be doing it, but he's doing it fucking anyway because he's the governor and it makes people money and they want that fucking real estate because it's prime, it's beautiful real estate. So if they move everybody out because it's expensive, air quote, and they shut that bitch down, you can build a very nice fucking Gavin Newsom winery on it, you fucking twat, and make all the money you want. <sighs> Sorry. What frustrates me is that if any of these people who are applying for this program are getting accepted and then moved to these four or five max prisons, which it still meets the max requirements, but they are no longer on death row, they are not telling us where is the transparency, especially for the victims and their families, if there are any surviving victims, if you move them to max four or five are on death row. You're just in your, in your box all day. You get one hour outside by yourself. But if you get moved to these other max prisons, like do, are you in gen pop? Do you get to make friends? If you make friends, do you get to go? No, like what? Make it make sense, Newsom. Make it make sense. It doesn't make sense. It's not safe. You have all of these fucking people that you keep fucking letting out that reoffend, and they hurt and they kill more people. 
What the fuck are you doing? I just don't understand. And it's very frustrating. And I, I'm sure that there are plenty of other people who are just as frustrated, if not more frustrated. So that is the end of this episode. That is the end of this rant. Um, the next episode that I'm writing is a individual who was arrested for manslaughter and served uh, a little bit of time and then re-released and did things. So I'll be angry on that one too. If you don't like it, wait until January 2023 when I have something happy to talk about. Maybe Krampus. I don't know. He's kind of a creepy cryptid lore man, so I don't think it'll be happy. But it might be a little more peppy. So. That's all I have for you. I have to go back to my actual job now. So until then, don't forget to... What is that bullshit that I have to say? Help. Help, brain. Rex, what do we say? Ah. Don't forget to like, follow, subscribe, rate, whatever the fuck it is you do to get media attention nowadays. Tell your friends. Don't tell your friends. But I don't know. I'll be here next week. Maybe you will be. Maybe you won't be. But I will be. So, until next week, I will talk to you later.